If you're 100% successful, is that a good or bad thing? It's bad because it tells me you're not taking enough risk, right? Nothing wrong with failure and learning and pivoting, but if you're always successful, you're not taking enough risk. So don't be afraid of doing that. Choose not to live in a world of filters. Realize your mistakes. Set the foundation for your success. Get some wins. Knucklehead Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Knucklehead Podcast. You got with you today, the Knucklehead Stephen. I'm excited about having our next guest on. We've kind of run the gamut in terms of industries and experience levels, you know, coming on to the show. And, uh, and that's why I like to have guests like today's guest on because he can, he can talk through not just his experiences, but probably even make some observations about mistakes or screw ups that of folks that he's worked with or, or maybe even, and maybe we don't dive too deep into that. But what I've found is when there's a screw up or a mistake, if you're a leader, you'll accept responsibility for it. And in conjunction with accepting responsibility for it, you'll start to see other people accept responsibility for their mistakes, which leads to some of the wins that I'm sure Neil's going to share with us today. So, Neil, I appreciate you taking some time. Neil Sahota. well, you've got a baseball championship shirt on, it looks like, or maybe that spring training. And then I'm seeing a Stanley Cup playoff thing behind you. What's with all the Florida love? What's going on here with all the sports love? I am a big sports nut, man. I uh, played a lot of sports growing up, some extreme sports. And now that I'm older, I can't quite play like I used to, like still watching the major sports on TV, man. That's my passion. Very cool. Very cool. What's your favorite sport? My favorite sport is actually ice hockey, man. It's the best to watch live. Nothing like on TV. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can all agree that sports live is better than sports on television, in my opinion, it's about the experience. So hockey, hockey is one of those things because it gets super cold. If you haven't been to a hockey game before, everybody who's listening to us is already like fast forwarding through the hockey talk, especially if they're in South in the South US, they're like, no, it's football and football only, but perhaps some baseball. But now that we've got some Northern fans on the podcast, let's dive into it. So what caused you to start liking hockey? What's up with that? I'm actually originally from New York, man. So cold weather. You know, okay. you get the ponds freezing over, you get the ice rinks. So, plus, you know, the Rangers were part of the original six. Okay. All right. Well, that's fair. So, are you down in Florida then? Are you become a Florida Panther fan or some type of like Tampa Bay Lightning, perhaps? I, I don't know. I, I, or are you still loyal to the, to the Rangers? I'm still loyal to the Rangers. I'm actually based in California. I'm wearing a Grapefruit League spring training t shirt. So, I do love baseball. Very cool. Yeah, baseball is one of those great American pastimes, man. We talk about screw-ups and mistakes. We could probably go on for hours about pitching screw-ups and mistakes, even just from this past season, this past World Series even, you know, just the challenges that Maestro's had against the Braves. But also, uh, it was a fun series to watch. A lot of offense, some really good defensive games, and pretty impressive how things worked out this year. So I don't want to dive too deep into that because we're going to start hearing banging trash cans and everybody complaining about, you know, the Astros, <laughs> the Astros cheating. So all right, Neil, so I appreciate you taking some time. Again, this is not quite a podcast. This is not, you know, I built it right for the first time or how I built this with Guy Ross. This is, you know, this is what you screwed up along the way. And the genesis of the show was predicated based off of things that I've screwed up, right? So like I just gotten to you know, a, a situation, I put myself in a situation where my communication created an issue that subsequently was made worse because my communication solved, you know, created the problem to begin with. So it, it happens constantly still where these screw ups or these mistakes 
can potentially be a barrier uh, to you making forward progress. So I'm, I'm interested, what, you know, when your experience of business or your experience of personal relationships or all the things that you're, you know, that you've gone through over the course of your career, give people the, an idea of kind of what some of the, the context behind some of your screw ups or mistakes were. It's a combination of things, Stephen. I mean, some was just, you know, I was kind of ignorant and didn't really understand how things worked or, you know, in some cases, how you engage people. Sometimes it's just you can't know everything. You made some bad assumptions. And sometimes I hate to say it is that you put your, your faith and trust in some people that probably didn't fully deserve it. That's fair. So there's there's gambit. doesn't mean don't take risks, but um, don't expect to be 100% successful all the time. You know, that's asking too much of yourself. Wow. That's, that's, very, that's a very simple and profound philosophy, but also probably well-earned in terms of the things that you've, uh, that you've, you've had to experience uh, along the way. What, could you have an example of maybe uh, a, a business venture or, or a, a project that you were working on that didn't go the way that you originally anticipated when obviously you probably started it with the intent of being 100% successful? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff I can point to, but there was a an endeavor, oh man, this was like six, seven years ago where, you know, kind of the explosion in the terms of needing like IT resources. And, you know, I had a buddy that was saying that, you know, South America actually has a lot of talent and they do. And he had a partner down there. And so, you know, based on my friend's word, I said, okay, let's, let's jump in and try and do this. Fortunately, his, his partner turned out he didn't know as well as he claimed he did. And the guy was unfortunately d- double dealing all the time. And so it turned out we were just basically, he's taking the money and funneling it to something else. And in the meantime, we're out there getting clients and business and it's not going anywhere. And so not only is it like the lost opportunity, the lost money, but reputational damage. Oof. You know, a lot of damage control. Yeah. How do you recover? How do you recover from a situation like that? Because I think that in today's kind of geo arbitraged environment where everybody's, you know, read the four hour work week from Tim Ferriss thinking that they could get by with doing less and getting more, uh, you know, there's one, th- there's merit to having an abundance mindset, but talk through a little bit about how you repair some of that reputational damage. Try to do your best to make it right. You know, we either try to get their money back or get some other people to help and, you know, eat some of that cost so that, you know, they're not left holding the, the bill, but you know, you can't never fully recover from some of that. And, you know, my, my friend that, you know, kind of got me into this, you know, our friendship has obviously never been the same because he, he vouched for someone and told me he knew some of this person really well and he actually didn't. So, you know how it is, it, it takes time to build trust, but you destroy that trust real quick. Yeah. Well, you're just, you're hovering over something that, that I wanted to jump into and, and maybe, maybe your background, we, we can cover this again real quick. So when it comes to, when it comes to the experiences that you have, I don't want to jump too deep into the Watson project or IBM here, but uh, I don't want to put you in a in a, a tough situation. But when it comes to you know measuring what capabilities are, and then looking at AI and looking at how you know different organizations are utilizing solutions that are fairly mature in terms of their application, but maybe not everybody's using them and they're not using them the way that they need to. Where do you see some some strategic planning mishaps may may happen at the enterprise level where folks who are trying to use AI but they're really not doing it at the full potential or at least their original intent of what AI is? That's a great question because that's actually what's happening. And there's, there's kind of two drivers that's kind of the roadblocks. First and foremost is that a lot of people expect the smart technologists to tell them, here's what to do. And the truth is there's a lot of smart technologists, but 
they don't understand the pain points of the business, right? You think about the challenges like a doctor has or an accountant or a marketer, they're probably not going to really know and know then how to apply the technology. And so you can't just sit back and say, okay, it's like a regular IT project. They'll just tell us what we can do here. The truth is they don't know, they don't know the domain well enough to be able to help you like that. And the second is that we're used to computers being about like automation and something faster, cheaper, less errors. AI is a different generation of computing. It works differently. So there's value in doing some automation, but you're tapping into like 20, 30% of what you can actually do with AI. And that's the biggest stumbling block most businesses have is they don't know how to think innovatively about the technology. They don't know the tool set and how it can be really applied to do something differently. Companies that are really succeeding are the ones that are really disrupting the way things are actually being done. And that's not something most people can fathom. Yeah, there, it's interesting that you're you're talking about maybe the misapplication or a, a misunderstanding of how that application could help derive a business result. I remember I went to um, Dreamforce back in, in 2016, 2017 timeframe, and there was a talk about, you know, the example I think that he gave was Walmart and Walmart.com. And the this natural friction that exists between both of those two separate entities. Now it may be one entity going to market. I, okay, so don't 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 throw your keyboards at me if I'm off base with how that I'm characterizing this. I'm just trying to paraphrase a little bit. And he talked about the the relationship between those two entities. One predicated based off of inefficiencies, largely right. So the physical box stores that has vendors come in and you know stock the shelves and oriented themselves with how consumer behavior is. And then you have this efficiency driven, you know, economies of scale, like these, this huge walmart.com fulfillment uh, process that competes right up against Amazon. And like, which one comes first? Who's, who's the master is one future proofing and one's not, how do you, you know, it was, it was very bizarre hearing organizations or this guy talking through that. So what I'm hearing you say is, if people don't have a clear understanding of what the outcomes are, how can they adequately use the technology uh, currently? And, and do you see folks doing that? I mean, that would that would be what I would call a knucklehead move if they did that. <laughs> but do you see folks doing that? That's actually what's happening, right? There's human resources, right? You think about recruiting, right? Right now, everyone's trying to find workers. And you have a lot of people saying like, well, can AI help you with recruiting? Like, could it read a bunch of resume, resumes and give me back better candidates than the keyword search can do. Yes, but that's automation, right? The smart companies, and some of them are already doing this, are saying like, when I, when I want to hire somebody, there's two things I care about. Are they qualified? And are they a fit for my team, my corporate culture? Qualification, we interview, we test. But the second one, are they a fit? is much harder, right? And the smart companies have actually built AI tools to figure out the fit. So, and that's where people are like, wait, you can do that? And AI can do that? And that's like, yeah. You, you got guys now that they're actually looking at you. They're, they can, from your, your resume or your LinkedIn profile, or some of them have you play a little game, they can figure out your work style, right? And say, okay, this is this kind of person's work style. Does it actually mesh with our culture? Is this person going to fit in with our team or not before they even check your qualifications? And so those guys have actually inverted the recruiting process. Imagine only looking at candidates now that are actually a fit for you. And it's like people are just scratching their heads and it's like, well, 
How do those guys think of that? And it's like, well, they were thinking innovation, not automation. Interesting. You, you, it's, a, it's an old axiom and everybody hates marketers, right? It, everybody talks about how, you know, you got this sawdust uh, that you're trying to sell as opposed to the actual widget or so, solution or, or product. You've got this sizzle that you're that you're trying to make marketable out there. And so what I'm hearing you say is, is in order to come up with that, you know, that fulfillment, you know, funnel, so to speak, you, you've got to change in how you're looking at the problem, which, you know, there's, it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for executives. And it's also a challenge for, for folks that are out there hooking and jabbing with customers to, to, to be focused all the time if they're constantly trying to change the way that they're looking at the problem. So given the close proximity that you have to technology like AI and the way that you view, you know, these solutions, what are some suggestions that you would have to somebody who's just beginning to, to view this? I mean, is it, do they have to study organizations? Do they study the technology? Do they study how it's going to market? Like have more conversations with people like you? Like what are some things that folks can do to, to get more spun up on, on the right way to use this tool? Well, there's, there's a few simple things everyone can do. You don't need to be a technical guru. You don't need to go learn, you know, machine learning, programming, all this kind of stuff. But have a little magic formula where it's, one, get the right mindset, right? First, open up your mind to these things. Second, bring a little foundational understanding. You don't need to know how, like, our programming works, but you understand the, the basic capabilities that AI could actually bring. Right. And then bring your domain knowledge and the pain points and see and say, okay, in a you know green field, I have this pain point over here. Right. Like, how do I know if this person's really a fit? Because no one's themselves during an interview and say, okay, out of this AI toolbox, what's there that can actually help me address that? Right. And maybe I have to change the process, I have to change other things. But that's actually how you wind up figuring these things out and to learn these capabilities. Again, you don't need to be a rocket scientist or anything like that. There's plenty of good YouTube videos that are very basic for non-technical people. I, mean, I wrote the book, Own the AI Revolution for Non-Technical Business Leaders for this very reason, so they can actually learn what some of these basic things are and how to use them. That's really where it starts. It's a little basic understanding of capabilities, bring your expert domain knowledge, and have an op open, fresh mind to things. When you wrote the book, um, thank you for plugging it, by the way. I, I was going to ask you, because I see it over your right shoulder there, were you thinking about just all the problems that you've heard in terms of the misuse of the technology, or were you thinking more oriented towards a solution-based book where somebody could read it and actually come up with identifying a problem within their business that they wanted to focus an innovation-type mindset, leveraging AI to come up with a different solution? It's more the latter, Stephen. I you know, working with businesses, you know, I saw this problem, right? And it, working one-on-one, -on -one, you can help them. But, you know, I got to this point where I realized it's like everybody ha needs help and everybody has the same set of questions, right? And me working with people one-on-one -on -one isn't the most effective way to try and help a mass of people. So I said, there's got to be a good book, right? And I looked around and it's like all the books were either super technical or they were so high level and fear mongering. I'm like, this is not really helping people. And so I said, you know, the only way to make this, make this happen then is for, for me to write a book rather than complain about there not being one. And so that's what actually prompted me. And so the book is actually filled with some practical knowledge, but also the practical framework and way you can actually apply the technology to solve problems. And 
it's filled with interviews from mostly people who are non-technologists that have built very successful AI solutions just to show people that you can do this. Your organization can do this. It doesn't matter how big or small your company is, you actually have the power to make this change. So you mean to say that folks could read your book and potentially come up with a solution as opposed to hiring an organization like Cognitive Scale or something something like that. That's that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I know that people probably need help in building something, but you know, the first piece, understand what you can do and what's possible sure. is the toughest, right? And the book will definitely help you do that. And there's a reason why it was named, you know, 2019 Best Business Book, because people have read it and actually come back and told me, it's like, wow, this opened up doors for us I never thought possible. Yeah, it's, uh, I love that. First of all, congratulations on on the title. That's exciting. Talk a little bit about that real quick. Most everybody writes a book because they want to solve a problem. There's not always that uh, reception that, pe- that people get. So did you expect and anticipate <laughs> that there was going to be that type of reception to it? Honestly, no, I hadn't thought that far down. <laughs> I'm the, I'm the kind of guy that really just legitimately wants to help people. And, yeah. you know, that, that probably helped me writing the book and saying that I'm, I was constantly thinking about my audience, what they would understand, what's meaningful to them, rather than me saying, like, I have all this great knowledge I'm going to put down on paper. But I think because I focused it so much on the audience, the readers, that I think it really did connect with them. It's, it's kind of the same way when I'm asked to give, like, a speech or a talk. I always make it about the audience. My, my goal is for them to walk away with something they feel like they can do and take action on, not to listen to me talk or read my cool words and sentences. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Neil, first of all, I appreciate you taking some time to talk through. I think that the misunderstanding that people have of the applications, not just it's not just to AI. However, it happens to be the topic of discussion today. You know, Would you say that there's a particular industry or subset of, of organizations that uh, that are more prone to make that, I guess, miscalculation and, and would be in need of, you know, of a book like yours or potentially some expertise like yours? Or do you find that it's, you know, much larger, mature organizations that are uh, that are out there kind of hooking and jabbing that are in need of innovation uh, that would need your your book? What, which one of the two would be better or is it both? It's, it's a good question. I think there's every industry is still struggling with this. And I think Steve, you're, you're actually a bit spot on. It's, it's the mid-sized to larger companies that struggle more. It's it, In large part, is they're used to doing things a certain way, right? Where it's not necessarily something is broken. It's not like, what are we trying to fix type of moment? Which is ironic because in, in my experience, especially, you know, building out these ecosystems and working with all these companies around the world, it's the entrepreneurs, it's the small startups that actually are thinking more innovatively, disruptively. Because they're... They're just coming in with the attitude is I got to find a different way of doing this, right? If I'm going to build an amazing company, it's got to be different. And so they're far more open to the possibilities than the more established companies are. That's interesting. That's a fascinating answer. One, because there's multi-billion dollar multinational corporations that exist, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now that are going to take what you're saying now. And they're barely, they're barely funded. They may not even be founded yet. And that's what's, that's what's, fascinating about, in my opinion, talking to folks who think the way that you do, uh, just because of the screw-ups and the mistakes. Uh, For instance, having tech talent in another country and not being able to vet the tool, utilizing that AI tool to to better find um, 
a talent and align them with your culture. Those are fairly related issues. Maybe I'm off base in saying that, but I think that those are fairly related. Um, and so it, I think it's interesting that you've kind of gone through that uh, a little bit yourself. All right. So let's, let's land this plane this way. What's the best way? Like if I'm listening to this podcast, I'm hearing about what it is that you're saying, you know, I like to explore new technologies. What's the best way? What, what is my next step? Do I go buy your book? Do I reach out to you on LinkedIn? What's the, what, what, what would I do if I'm listening to the show? Well, definitely buy the book. It is awesome. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I definitely encourage people to follow me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. I do post all the time about and some trends and AI, and I'm very big about social enterprise, social entrepreneurship. There's also a lot of other good resources. I helped the United Nations actually create and launch the AI for Good initiative, okay. which is where we're using AI technology to solve the big problems like climate change and hunger and poverty. I won't bore everyone the entire list. But you can see that there's a lot of work just even from this kind of standpoint. The UN, which is a big, bureaucratic, slow-moving organization, with AI for good, they're running it like a startup, actually. So they're actually kind of paving the way that even the big organizations can do this and be nimble about it. Interesting. So I would definitely check out some of the work we're doing at AI for good. And then, like I said, there's there's actually several good YouTube videos to help you learn about some of the basics. But start thinking about what's one small thing you might be able to do with the technology. And if you need help trying to take that beyond the idea stage, then reach out to folks like myself. We're more than happy to help you kind of flush that out so you can actually go and do something. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that's the challenge. I mean, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, for some things that you've heard discussed here today, uh, your your action steps or your next steps are real simple. Just do exactly what he did. That's cool that you're, talk, that you're working with the AI for good. Talk a little bit just real quick as we kind of wrap here, how that relationship developed. Did they read your book or somebody on the UN read your book and reach out to your publicist? Well, how'd that, how'd that work out? It, it started about seven years ago that they did this big conference every four years with all the world leaders and ambassadors, and they actually came to me. These couple of guys apparently have heard me talk and you know attend one of these my workshops and how you can apply the technology, and they're like, "Did you come address the United Nations?" And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, right, because that happens, yeah, of course. Yeah, but they they invited me out. I was warned that they thought it was Terminator time. The robots are going to rise up, conquer the world, right? Humanity. I give a little more uplifting talk, but I showed actually how the technology could be applied for public service and applied for the sustainable development goals. And long story short, that even at the reception, the secretary general approached me and he's like, we never thought about using the technology, right? He's like, you've got a lot of people excited. There's a lot of momentum. I want to figure something out. Will you work with us? And that wound up being the the birth of the AI for Good initiative. That's really cool. I love hearing that. That's good for you. Uh, it's it's exciting to to think about, you know, an innovative approach to an existing problem. Because in most cases, the problem is just symptoms of the incorrect approach to begin with. That's just been compounded over time, right? So if you can think of an innovative way and leverage a technology to go. Uh, solve that problem. I think that that's fascinating. So I appreciate that. Anything else that you want to leave these folks with? I know that we're right up against it in terms of time. I'll just say, don't be afraid to take risk. You know, this the show is about, don't worry too much about failure. I always like to ask the interview question, if you're 100% successful, is that a good or bad thing? And everyone's like, uh, well, it's bad, but I don't know why. It's bad because it tells me you're not taking enough risk, right? Nothing wrong with failure, learning and pivoting. 
But if you're always successful, you're not taking enough risks. So don't don't be afraid of doing that. And don't be afraid of figuring out what you could do with AI for innovation. Think about disruption rather than automation. I really appreciate that. That's a that's a fantastic way to wrap today. So if you really want to have yourself an adventure, spell Sahotets. S A H O T A. It's real simple. It's, it's spelled. <laughs> it's it's pronounced exactly how it's spelled. Uh, so go find them on LinkedIn. But my encouragement to you, for those of you who are listening, is to take that advice that Neil just uh, essentially wrapped this this podcast with, and go if you're interested in some of these topics and and the strategies and and processes that he just made reference to. Go and and is it? I want to script the title of the book. It's AI. What what is the book again? It's called Own the AI Revolution. You can find it on Amazon and all major book retailers. There you go. All right. Well, there's your challenge. There's your challenge, y'all. I appreciate you. For those of you like listening to Knucklehead, Neil, I appreciate your time for today. Remember, don't be a bait about the process. New episodes coming at you best we can every Tuesday. So tune in. And uh, if you don't forget to rate, subscribe, like the show, or go to that website that he just talked about at the AR for good. Neil, well, I appreciate you, man. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks, man. Take it easy, Steven. You bet. 